This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with lead strength and conditioning coach for GB Hockey, Tom Drowley. He discusses his journey into the role, how he's created subsells so players engage with their development plans, as well as periodization over a hockey season. This podcast was also recorded over the internet, so it may sound a little different to normal. I hope you enjoy. Good. So, Tom, long time no speak. Um, how are things? Very good. Thanks, mate. It's uh, good to hear from you the other day. Um, yeah, it must have been... Oh, I can't remember when I left now. Uh, left Bath. So, yeah, five years? Five and a bit years? Yeah, so it's been a while. So, obviously, yeah, as you alluded to there, we kind of met at Team Bath. I was playing and then coaching in the uni program there and obviously you were doing the S&C, S&C stuff there um, and then am I right in thinking you left to work for the EIS is that correct yeah so um yeah Bath I firstly did the tennis academy and Southampton football um as well as the university team with you and you and Lee Smith and people like that um and then I went on to lead the department um there and did TAS sports but also the high performance judo a lot at Bath and I was actually in that about eight nine months and then yeah they came up with um GB hockey which is EIS the, the draw for me initially was the hockey to have a team team sport in the Olympics is pretty rare so um that was the major draw and then yeah the big bonus being that yeah now I've been EIS for five just over five years now so how did you find um, going from somewhere like Team Bath, where obviously you have some elite athletes, but then obviously you're working with university students, etc., to then going into an environment where you're working with, you know, all elite athletes, um, Olympians, etc.? When I first got there particularly, it was, it was very much aspiring to the university institute. You had Kate Eddy leading there, uh, and we had a great team. So Kate Eddy, um, Alex Chapman, Nick Lumley, uh, Bob Smith, Ed McDermott was there as well, Pete Gaskell and John Watson. Uh, talking about people that have gone on to quite good things. And there's a real performance aspiration there. So although you say, I mean, don't worry, the girls and the guys that I've worked with at hockey have a major drive. But you've still got people that are young, coming out of university. So my work at the university was really useful. Um, you've still got people that have almost just come out of school. So having worked at the tennis academy lot, that was really good. Um, I now work full-time with females. So to come in and work with um, under 18 and over 18, sort of like junior and then you know adult female athletes was massive. Um, so effectively, it, look, it's a bit it's a bit Ryan Holiday, but the whole obstacle is the way thing is, I, I, I do believe in that, in that whoever's in front of you, whoever you're working with, learn how to work with them as well as you possibly can. And you're gonna bugger out, but you also, if you've got the right attitude, you're gonna learn from it. And then you just find that use those tactics with whoever's in front. And um, I, I just happen now to work with female athletes in hockey, but they've all come from, most of them come from university. Most of them come from development systems. And so just the goal's a bit bigger, the goal's the Olympics. And do you think that working in that environment where you're working with different groups with different aspirations gave you a good foundation? 100%. Um, I think when I started... You know, I had the idea of what's my perfect job, and now to be honest with you, I, someone goes, "Oh, where do you want to be 
what's the what's the perfect job for you? And you just don't know because actually you start to realise over time that the varied nature of every role that you've had had major bonuses and some negatives and things that you had to overcome and people you had to work with, good eggs, bad eggs. So, yeah, it set me up really well. Um, and what I'm doing with hockey now will set me up well for whatever comes in the future, not because it's the perfect stepping stone, but because I hope I've got the sort of attitude where you're going, right, well, I'm going to learn from this and it's there's going to be a new challenge I've never seen before when I go where I go to next, if I do move on anytime soon. Um, so, yeah, I feel, I feel well set. Um, but you should always, I think, when you move on jobs as well, feel a little bit scared and not, not quite know what's coming. But no, working with you and working with uh, Lee, Lee Smith, for example, who was the football coach at the time, working with Lee when he was with the university lads versus working with Lee when he was with Southampton, you know, you, you see a different side of people there because he's working with people with different aspirations and he had different aspirations, I think, within those two roles. So I had to be different with Lee depending on whether I was in Southampton or whether I was in Team Bath mode, I think. So, yeah, it's it's all... It's all learning, mate, and um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to change it. But I'm glad I've got the variance that I do. Well, how did you come about that realization that that you were able to collect a load of skills from these different things? Because, like you said, there originally you wanted, you were like, well, this would be my perfect role. How did you come to the realization that actually? the journey is an important part of it and it's kind of what's right for you at that time or whatnot. I mean, it'd be easy to say philosophically, I realised earlier this is the way, um, you know, first role, especially in strength conditioning, it's like there's, there's, there's way more, especially now there's strength conditioning courses out there um, and bespoke stuff for strength conditioning. Um, there's way more people than there are jobs and way more people than there are and jobs in elite sport so part of it could be yes I looked for variance because it would give me a different skill set another part was my first job at Gloucester well I just wanted a job I just needed a job I'd done I'd stalled as long as I could I'd done my undergrad I'd done my masters I did my masters straight away because I was like right there's no jobs here but I can have MSc on my name which don't get me wrong I I would rather have done my MSc um, in in situ now while I'm in role, so like, I would have really targeted it. But to honestly, I'm also really pleased with it at the time because I now have that, and it's a bit of stepping stone qualification to sort of put HR tick MSc. So I'd already stalled, and then um, my boss went for the job at Gloucester at Loughborough, but the the money wasn't right for him, and so he recommended me. And then they saw me coming and they, they halved that salary again. And I snapped it up. Um, and then when I was at Gloucester, um, I didn't really have any aspirations to leave. I don't know where I'd go. It just happened that an opportunity came up at Team Bath and someone that I knew from Gloucester had gone there and could recommend me. So that gave me a better shot, I think, to get the job there. Um, and then it's just about having an open mind, I think. And just being like, okay, I could do that, I could do that, I could do that. And when an opportunity comes up that seems exciting, going for it and and backing yourself. Um, if that answers your question, I, I don't think I had a grand plan. It's just it's just happened. Sounds like from what you're saying, the network inside can be important in terms of you know having people in different places to be able to either 
point you in the right direction or I'd imagine similar to the football industry gain knowledge from as well so how did you go about or how have you gone about kind of networking and trying to knowledge share and all that type of stuff Mate, I'm an appalling networker <laughs> <laughs> absolutely appalling um, considering how much I like to talk um, I have undervalued networking quite severely and I think it's it's hampered me a bit one thing I would say is that there is there is networking for networking's sake where you're just going around and you're making sure that people just hoping that people know your name um, and then you suddenly you've met them once you had them in LinkedIn and that's a network it's just not um, what I really hope and what I've tried to what I pride myself on is that people that I have worked with, either for a medium to long period of time, become a connection. Or if there is someone that I meet and we have a way of collaborating which actually adds value to what they're doing or adds value to what I'm doing, that for me is net is the better networking. Where actually you've got there's mutual benefit in you having met, there's interest in having met, and they value and they know you're competent. And I'm, although it's a slower build, I'm, I'm hopeful that the people I've worked with um, value the work that I've done and would recommend me or would um, give me a heads up if something comes up that might be of interest. Um, but the key thing is be, be useful to people and be um, ask yourself what you can get give for them or what, what a value you can add, not because you see it all the time now and it and it stinks to be honest with you when it happens to you when people come to you and you can tell they're networking um, it just, it's just like okay good we know each other's name now for, for the half an hour that you're here and then we won't remember each other's name again but so good quality relationships with good people that you've worked with I think is the key and how would you say you build those you could probably put a theoretical model on it but effectively, you gain, you build trust with those people um, and you show competence and you show that you're um, good value for what it is that you're trying to bring. Um, I think, um, I, would, I would like to, I think I have, a, I'd like to think that the people that I've worked with would, would recall working with me in a, in a few ways. I mean, there's going to be variants. Um, but for example, I, I would like to think, so seeing that you spoke to Megan the other day and that, that came out, I didn't work with Megan for as long as I would have liked. I would hope that she realised how committed I was to everything I did there, that I added value to her career and what she was trying to do. And yeah, there's a care there. There's a care there, there's a professional integrity, uh, there's a competence. And I think that's the key, especially when you're a professional. Um, I think people jump to the friendship side a bit quick um, and sort of go, oh, was he a good guy? Well, there's plenty of good people out there, but effectively, if you're an athlete and you want to win something, you're going to drop the nice people that are rubbish really quick. Same as you're a coach. Like, you don't care if someone's a nice guy. When it, when you, you, will, you will then foist someone onto someone else if they're a nice guy but they're rubbish. You will recommend someone that's a good guy and was good at their job or not a good guy, or you didn't like them very much, but they were bloody good. Um, so I think it's based on that. So it's integrity in what you do, and 
yeah, then then your personality that can rub people the wrong way. As well. And does that align with like your personal beliefs and values in terms of being competent and um, hard working and committed and all that type of stuff? Is that how you would would you uh, describe yourself as that? I suppose everyone does, don't they? Honesty, integrity, all, all the all the buzzers. Um, yeah, look. In all the jobs you go into, you get at some point there's some team building day where you get asked what are your values. And to be honest, when you have to try and articulate what your values are, it's really bloody difficult. The only time you really know when um, I think what your values are when they get crossed, or when there's a mismatch between what you perceived, what people's expectations of your values were, and what they actually think. That and you get stung. You're like, no, but I thought it was like this. Um, or what you get excited by. Like if you want to start learning about other people's values, I think watch when they get passionate, either negatively or positively, you can get an idea. Um, I, I suppose I am hardworking, um, and I don't stop until something's done, especially if there's a mission. But I get really excited by the mission. Like, what can we get done? Like. S and C is kind of my. St- I was a, I was a failed sportsman, as most S and C most S and C coaches are. Like I just PE teacher's dream, I think, in terms of you know I play every sport and I could be a good pick in every team, but I was never the best in any team, <laughs> in any year. Um, but I found myself having conversations with people about sports science, about you know, what do at the time Man United were dominating. Um, you know what do Man United do? How come they keep winning the ninth minute? Um, what did Pince and Redgrave do to win that gold? How come we're winning more golds now? Like, what are people doing? Um, so I'm, I'm just fascinated by searching out the truth. Really, it sounds, that sounds a bit profound, but like the truth for me is really important. Like, what genuinely works? What leads to success? And how can I use this role as a stepping stone to get to places that, a, as a sports person, I'd never be. I'd be in a pub league somewhere. But actually, suddenly, I had a chance this summer, although COVID had other ideas, of going to the Olympics. Got credited as manager. Like, what the hell? So that's... So, yeah, what are my values? Yes. Um, hard work, competence are right up there. But also, um, exploration, what's the truth about stuff. Um, and I really enjoy helping other people achieve stuff that they wouldn't have achieved otherwise. Or helping them along the way have you always been curious like that is that something you've been through as a child or not yeah I think so I mean ask a lot of questions hand up in class so yeah mate I love it um, and I'll tell you I'll tend to, yeah whatever I'm in at that time I'll, I'll jump in and be curious about it. but particularly when the area that I'm looking into is something that I am passionate passionate such an overused word but what I'm passionate about I love sport Um I love the competition, not not for its own sake. I realise the futility of sport. Um, sometimes when we're flying around the world, sort of looking at going, my God, what are we doing? We're flying 30 people around the world in a time where there's a climate crisis and there's all this other stuff going on, blah, blah, blah. But the competition and the fact that you're pushing people to do things that seems unreal or beyond what they thought was real for them, that's awesome. Um, and so, yeah, I'm curious as hell about that. And are you um, interested in all sports? Because your background in terms of, like you said, you had a crossover at S&C. Have you always been quite diverse in the sports that you've enjoyed watching or participating in? 
yeah, it's funny. And I love team sports. I really do. I love the, but also I love I like fighting sports. I really enjoy judo, even though I was only a short time. I love that because the the combination of technical expertise with the physicality, and then the mental the mental fortitude to be really really good at that is awesome. I love that. Um, I then there's a second tier of sports I think for me where I love them every four years when the Olympics is on. <laughs> <laughs> like the curling syndrome where everyone watches our curling team but then doesn't do it for another four years I've got to be honest I would I'm not so interested in curling um, <laughs> um, even yeah even every four years but the things like rowing I particularly enjoy watching every four years cycling um, actually more so cycling sort of opened up a bit for me in terms of more Tour de France every year but then more and more track cycling and watching that. I struggle a bit more with the sports that are um, much more physiologically based, where it's it's about um, chasing times and um, physical capability, which sounds strange because I'm a strength conditioning coach, um, but I've got a team sport background and I love the idea of the this, the complexity of team sport and the skill nature of it combined with the physicality so how can you interact with the coaches how can you help them fulfill their tactical dreams or their tactical aspirations or you know when we're uh, working with Jürgen with judo it's like he had an idea of how a fighter could fight and win um, how can you help them achieve that with the physical side but also collaborating with the, the technical coaches that was really interesting when I look at other sports where technically as an S&C coach, you are a, a strength conditioning clinician. Um, weirdly enough, I don't find that so interesting um, because I'm not an S&C purist as such. I find it a really, really interesting subject. I love sports science. I love the idea of how training can help performance. Um, you almost look... It sounds like you almost like the combination of tech tax side and combining it with physical performance with mental performance rather than like a physiological as you said there physiological like almost pure base if you like I've got huge respect for it honestly I, I, it's not me trying to downplay that side it's more just you, you get an idea of what makes you tick um, and I love that I love I remember we were in Loughborough once and um, I was just sitting by the TV in the gym and this there was an athletics guy there and he was getting really pissed off at the screen because this person that wasn't meant to win was winning. He's like, oh, there's no way this guy should be winning. He's nowhere near as uh, good as the other person. And I was loving it because I was like, wow, there's an underdog doing this and there's something going on, there's a mind games playing. But he was just like, no, physically he is not... Um, he shouldn't be being this person if he's not as good as this person. And that bothered him. Whereas for me, I enjoy that extra element where actually you don't quite know how it's going to end up, but you do everything you can to, to set up success. But the combination of the physical with the, the tactical and the technical, as you say, um, and then that's essentially how I work as well, I think, is um, try and work as much as possible in collaboration with the multidisciplinary team, so nutritionist, psych, uh, physiotherapists, doctors, um, uh, performance lifestyle, I mean, that's massive. Um, 
working with those people to make programs as successful as possible and making sure your bit is as good as possible but working in with the equalizer in the right at the right settings for that individual or that team to then win something that's that's really interesting and do you feel like you've learned a lot that's transferable going from sport to sport so is there anything you learned in judo that you're able to use in hockey or your time at Gloucester then you're able to come and use in your tennis or football roles or is there anything that you've been able to learn and transfer from role to role I mean almost everything almost everything um, to the point where I back, I back myself in any obviously you've got to learn about sport and you've got to learn about the culture of sport and the people that are there but I back myself to go anywhere because almost any sport because effectively strength conditioning and uh, what it what it entails so that from the strength side, power side, etc., etc., but also from a conditioning standpoint, the physiological adaptation you're looking to make it's it's adaptations. You're chasing adaptations. You're trying to increase the physical potential of the pe- of the people in front of you to perform better, give them more degrees of freedom for performance. By that, I mean you're giving them more options by increasing their physical capability. So effectively, how you... I remember putting Megan and Ben Fletcher through some horrible hypertrophy programs. Horrible. Um, And what was amazing working with them was you knew, particularly working with with those guys, and Gemma as well, who's phenomenal uh, there, like they would do your program to the absolute nth degree. They do everything perfectly. So you genuinely learn whether that program worked or not. And you saw the adaptations that happened. You saw when you optimised, you saw when you got it slightly wrong. You see, you see whether the program works. You see whether the program you wrote got the adaptation you're after. But also you, what you start to see from each sport you're working is the same program on two different people. Either that program wasn't um, bang on or actually you start to see that someone's mental intent and commitment to a program was almost more important than the program you wrote. So you could write a bang average program and if someone does it to the nth degree, works really well. Someone has the perfect program and just doesn't commit to it, doesn't do anything. So that's, for example, one thing you take across, you, you know that works well, two ways. One is you know either you haven't created the right environment for someone to go at it as hard as they can, or you can call bullshit and say, look, I know this works. And actually what we've got here is a, a commitment issue and actually sticking to the program as opposed to the program not working. Um, but that's that comes down to like hypertrophy, that to max max strength and how you go about getting that, um, how you need to engage with individuals in order to get that intent, but also to how you negotiate with coaches um, and work with coaches to help them fulfil their dream of what they're looking at, they're trying to achieve, but also learn to like inform consent about okay we can go this way but here's what might happen and how can I how can I help which bits do I fight for which bits do I leave that's that doesn't matter what sport you're in and you've mentioned there and you mentioned it earlier kind of about I guess people challenging your line if you like so if you've got an individual there who you've written a program for and actually you do know it works but you're seeing them cut corners and stuff, which I'd imagine as a coach, and obviously I have it with the lads on the more tech side, but you, you've kind of got it on your, your physiological side. How do you go about challenging their behaviours? 
around that and challenging actually go actually you're not holding up your end of the bargain to a certain degree how do you go about skillfully challenging those yeah it's a good question um yeah it's a really good question because there's effectively there's one thing i've learned it's the people will achieve what they want to achieve and it's it's up to the individual and it's up to the people that you are working with to to bring it um what you're trying to do is create the best environment and make sure you're not an impediment to anything that might be the way. And where you can, you help them and you try and amplify um, what they can do. But effectively, if that person doesn't want it or there's something else going on that you don't know about, you can find yourself pushing a rock up a hill quite a lot of time. When it's particularly when I was younger, and I haven't nailed it yet, obviously, no one's nailed anything, but I've calmed myself down monumentally over the years in terms of not getting upset, not living vicariously, not um, not basically going, why don't you want this like I want this? Um, because it just doesn't help. Um, but what you can do is you learn over time all the things that maybe got in the way that set that up. So you can either just do potentially what happens a lot in sport, which go, they just didn't want it, the athlete doesn't want it, and they move on. Or they don't achieve what they could have done. Or what's getting, what I'm finding really interesting at the moment is um, the use of multidisciplinary team, like I said earlier, in terms of psychology, but also performance lifestyle. Because oftentimes when someone is a high-performing athlete, but they just don't want it, that those two things don't match. There's something, there's something going on. They are high-performing individuals if they're if they're an Olympic squad, or if they're in a high-performance academy, or if they're. So what is going on for that person, and how can you skillfully set up the environment for them to actually start to build in is it about have you female athletes in particular although a lot of male athletes i'll do this with now have you explained the why you know go simon Sinek on it and basically go have you start with why but have you started with why do you know your reasons for doing stuff have you explained the reasons for that have you looked at things like um self-determination theory in terms of like have you allowed given them relatedness do they feel part of something bigger do they feel part of a group have you given them autonomy like, have you given them choices when they can have choices? Do they feel like they're competent? That sort of thing. So that would be one thing I'd advise people to look at, is look at um, frameworks and motivation, and then question yourself and go, what have I done here to facilitate that person's motivation? Set everything up, do everything you can, and work as hard as you can to make sure that people have what they need to perform as well as they can. And when you can look yourself in the mirror, and know that you've done that, and uh, and there still isn't happening. Call, call it in a in a respectful way, in a nice way. Um, but you've got to be got to be willing to do someone go. You're not giving what you need to give here. Um, here's everything, everything we've got in place, and I've tried. I'm working with you here, but also, but agree that contract it. Say when do you want me to call you out? Because I think that's important. Just the whole bellowing thing when I, you haven't even agreed to me bellowing you. Like, what the hell's that? It's. But if I'm going to go right, here's our program. Here's what we want to achieve you in, and they say yes, and go right at points. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to push you because I think there's more in there. Are you happy with that? And some people might say that's a bit soft, but it's vital because then you're when you do start pushing. It comes from a position of trust. It comes from a position of agreement. And yeah, go to town, but call bull when it's there because. Um, but then, don't take it home with you. Don't take it personal. Don't take it personally. We're all just trying to get more skillful at this, and actually think communication and 
working with other people is a skill as well as a sort of you've got your nature you've got your um your defaults like i'm a default angry little man um too much energy talks too much as you're finding out um that doesn't mean that's how i need to respond all the time there are there are loads of skills so at the moment i'm looking into a guy uh, called chris voss who's an fbi negotiator and he talks about um building tactical empathy and how actually, I don't know if you've sort of seen like Daniel Kahneman's or like Thinking Fast and Slow talks about system one, system two in terms of people's uh, emotional or sort of logical responses to things and actually how you can play on those and how you can help get rid of the emotional brain to help more logical responses come out. No, I haven't seen that. What, what's that in or what book's that in? So, so Chris Voss, he, he's written, a, I mean, I'm just starting that. Um, but he's like i say former fbi negotiator um and then worked with harvard and bits like that to try and um put theory to what they'd learned in the field um, and his book is uh, never split the difference uh so i have heard of a um i have heard a guy talk about this and he said he, he used it quite well with his wife before she read it <laughs> he said that he, he 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 was able to communicate with her better for a period and then she read it and she was like don't use those tools on me i know that you've got it from that guy but yeah I, to be honest that's on my reading list carry on sorry but no 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 but exactly that and there's a really, what I was going to say is a really good example of like every single situation is your is your playground for this stuff, which is why I find that fascinating. Um, and Steph, my fiance, I don't think I've ever called her my fiance. Um, like, yeah, she'd be fuming if she knew that. Like, so often I'm like, she's my best CPD. She's my best learning tool ever for work. Because, um, for example, I learned from her a long time ago that when I'm really sure I'm right. Like really sure, I'm 99% like I'm wrong, and that was playing out work. When I really hit someone hard with something, actually I was too involved with something and I, I missed the point and they went nuts. Um, so yeah, Chris Voss never split the difference. So I'm looking to that. But his in his intro, he, he talks about or references Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and like it's a it's a it's a long read. I'd recommend the audio book rather than the actual book, although you need the resources. But that was such an eye-opener in terms of um, these heuristics, things like availability bias. So if you hear that there's um, someone's been concussed, someone you heard a story about concussion, and then someone in your squad gets concussed, the availability bias will kick in and say, oh, there's like the massive problem with concussions. It's just an availability thing. So bad example for it, but you start to see in your work and in your interactions with everyone you deal with, these biases, the heuristic, you see them in yourself. And if you can just learn to reflect on that stuff when you have interactions and sort of look at yourself, stand back a bit and go, okay, how did I act in that situation? You learn so bloody quick. Um, so, yeah, I'd recommend that. So that would be experience, caring less in terms of not taking it home and not being not pers- not making it personal, um, but then working your, working your ass off to make sure that the people that are in front of you, you give them everything you can. One thing you mentioned a minute ago was about the framing to the players and framing it in the right way. So mm-hmm. when would you frame your sessions or a block of work? Would you do that before you started the block? Would you do it every day before you're going to train? How, how does that look in your environment? All the time, mate. Um, 
And I work with someone called Andrea First, who um, also now works with England rugby psychologist. She's she's fantastic, and she's really nailed like slammed this home to me in terms of how language and messaging is absolutely key. If you can frame something, and you can give people the the context of where they're at, um, on the back of a really solid framework and a really solid. Um, I think it's important anyway, but but also I'm a details guy, even though I'm not detailed at all in any other part of my life other than work. Like I like to be really detailed and logical, um, and every time I've had to make a decision, I'm like, right, if I had to make that decision before, if I have, right, make a system, okay? Um, so I like to share the system, sort of say, look, it's here. I don't need them to understand, people understand it, but you can also put stuff more in sort of layman's terms sometimes. But say at the moment with the Olympics, like we have unbelievable uncertainty about about everything when's the olympics been cancelled um ever um, it's been cancelled now we've got a year to get ready for it um there's so much uncertainty other than the fact when else have we actually known our opponents known that we've qualified had a, a dress rehearsal that we were most of the way through for our olympic prep and we've got a chance to do it again so we while i bring that up what i've tried to do now is I'd also recommend there's a book, uh, Alistair Campbell, whether you like him or not. Um, he wrote a book called Winners, where he looked at the different habits of like very successful people, or winners as he termed it. And his opening gambit or opening section in it is all about um, objectives, strategies, tactics. Right? And your objectives are how you define success. Strategies is how you think you're going to get there. And that strategy is really hard for in terms of what you're going to try and do. Tactics in the field is things you're actually end up doing. So at the moment, we have complete uncertainty about our tactics. We don't know what we're allowed to do. We don't know how many times we're allowed to train before COVID. Someone gets COVID in our group and we have to close down. We don't know if the ambition gyms can stay open. All sorts of things are changing. But what we do have is our strategy. So we think that we know what physical characteristics we need to build in the group in order to be in the best possible place by January because by January we want to do the next bit which is all about heat acclimation and actual team team performance. And then come April, it's like last year at uni. It's like specialise, perform, dissertations, get your marks. It's all, it's all there. So we've got our strategies right now in terms of what this August period means for us. It's all very well me knowing that, but the girls need to know that. The staff need to know that. Because as soon as you share that sort of stuff, people can collaborate, people can question but people can also commit because they've got an idea of what's going on. And you just tell them, okay, I want you to trust me that I'm going to change the tactics as they come, but our strategy is this and this is what we're going to do. And every session we have, it's going, right, this Monday, FMAX Monday, for example, it's a max strength day. So max strength days on that Thursday is um, run fast, jump high, chase numbers, because it's all about the first day we get to train when people are fresh after a day off on a Wednesday. So it's, it's framing that session, but also then framing the week within a block, but then knowing what block looks like and sharing that journey with people. Because um, weirdly then, you would have thought if you share it, people would ask you more, more questions and start going, why would we do this? Once you share stuff, people people get on with it. And then people collaborate. I remember we went to America um, and we have these things called adaptation focus groups where what I was trying to do was create smaller pods, smaller groups of people that had particular things that they needed to work on that would get the team goal 
to progress quicker. So there's no point chasing like feedability, which is um, your ability to do maximal tasks repeatedly with either the minimum amount of fatigue or the the the, uh, the best mean performance or the lowest drop off in performance. Depends how you define it. Effectively, in team sports, it's pretty vital um, in terms of your ability to sprint, uh, do explosive actions or pertinent actions with purpose at key moments, even under fatigue. Um, so that became a key focus after the last Olympics, uh, which we won. Um, we, like Ben Rosenblatt and Danny Kerr, I mean, those two worked with one team, but those two in particular, really focused on eight matches in 13 days. That was our theme. That was the whole thing. Because that's how many matches we have to play in Olympics to win it. And they won eight matches in 13 days. But Danny had a vision after the Olympics, which was not a vision, but you know what I mean? He had a vision. Um, he was like, look, we're, we're really durable, but we're not fleet foot. And that was his that was his language for basically, we're not quick. We're not In the key moments, other teams look faster than us. So how can we stay just as durable and grind people down, but also be quicker? So the whole thing came about, of my mission became, right, how do we create an incredibly durable side that has an increased repeat spinability? Because that would indicate that they are quicker in the first place because you need to have something to recover from but also that they can hold on to it. But we can still do disgusting three-week blocks that are going to prep us for the Olympics. But how you get people there, I mean, right, no offence, mate, you probably wouldn't be in the most explosive category, from what I remember, but how you would improve your repeat speedability might be different to people in your team, other people in your team, but there'll be three or four people like you that probably had the same sort of goals. So we had this idea of going, right, well, we've got a team goal of improving repeat speedability. Um, but we need to get there in different ways. But what we also need is everyone to appreciate that when you're seeing people doing different work, you need to understand that that work is all leading to us as a team progressing. So we create these adaptation groups. Um, and that was a, Emma Gardner, the nutritionist, like did, and Andrea also helped with how we message this and uh, put it across the group. Um, we put them into these groups, and some of those groups have been lean body mass groups where, you know, call it what it is, some people try and lose skin folds, like lose body fat and get their aerobic fitness up as high as they can whilst chasing other things. And there was also an aerobic group that didn't do so well on our, or needed to improve for their position and their aerobic fitness and their running capability. So we're in America, and uh, I get out for breakfast, and I get two of the girls come up to me and go, um, Oh, Tom, we're just thinking tomorrow the flight's quite late um, and we kind of had our recovery day today. So we're wondering in the morning if we could do one of our uh, fasted aerobic sessions, which was what, one, of, one of the tactics, not the only tactic. And initially, I got f***ed off because I was like, excuse me, I'm the SNC coach because I hadn't realised there was this opportunity. And I suddenly realised it was a bit of a eureka moment where we suddenly had, because we'd, because they were in on the journey, they understood uh, what was going on, and they bought into it. They had 25 S&C coaches on this trip. And so they went and did that session, and they were really pleased they did it. I was chuffed they did it. And once I rolled my ego up, that I'd forgotten that there was an opportunity for that, and it was all good. So, yeah, mate, long, long answer to say, message everything, think about how it all comes together, and um, like invest in the long game, whilst also making short-term gains in terms of what can someone do in front of you in that moment, but also invest in the long game in terms of language, um, strategy, sharing of a vision with people, and then listen to feedback on stuff because if you've got a, if you've got a good group, 
they'll guide you and then your consultant. And those education processes for the players, what form does that take? Is that a team meeting? Is that pod meetings? Is it done via presentation? Is it done via video? What does it look like? Could look at it. Could look at anything. Again, it's the um, think back to that sort of objective strategies, tactics thing. The tactics, like you've spoken about there, all, that's exa- those, all those things there are tactics in terms of, are we going to have a team meeting? Um, so do I need to request time from the head coach to get is a presentation to the girls or to put something together? And then when I first started, we, uh, I just asked them, when have you been physically dominant and what did it feel like? And give examples. Um, and then people came back and we had, oh, I've still got the post-it notes now. Uh, but like, there was one, I remember, it was like Holly Beck, the girl, at Champs Trophy and she did like she properly dropped the shoulder into this girl and she went flying but the rest of the girls looked at that and were like well Holly's the best player in the world um, and also she just decked a girl like she like we're or we can outrun anyone we play or this that so we did that and that was great and that formed a lot of the things we spoke about for those two years at the World Cup um, sometimes we like over this period we've been doing Keeping Connected course uh, which has been led by Andrea of psych, um, where me and Emma G as the physical prep team have just sort of dropped in on a few sessions to first just ask them how they are, what's going on, but then also just to reaffirm what the theme is at the moment, um, what we'd like people to be doing, when we're going to have more structure, what's coming up. Um, so yeah, it's it's very varied. It's it's more just knowing what's your outcome. If the outcome over um, over lockdown was how do we keep a very connected group of players that are happy and healthy so that when we start training again, um, they're in the right place to train hard and build? Well, that was what we did. So are the group happy and healthy? Yes, no, adjust accordingly. When we get to September, it'll be individual performance. So that will be where we'll do diagnostics. I mean, there's one thing, diagnostics. Right? The number of years it's taken me to persuade people their diagnostics, it's not testing, has been incredible. Like we're talking five, we're talking five years, and I still get it where people try and f- me up and say, "Oh, we got testing this week." It's like, no, it's diagnostics. But it's that idea that we use diagnostics to then write their programs. So what your diagnostics shows up like, that's what your program will then be, and that's what your adaptation focus group will be. It's killed me a little bit because we end up doing diagnostics at the start of blocks, um, which means that actually people aren't in the peak condition at the end so we had to work on how we then close the loop to give people feedback and also stakeholders feedback that we are fitter than when we started because if you looked at my four-year cycle you go well aerobic fitness didn't improve much so no it didn't it dropped off every time we then came back to do diagnostics didn't improve and um, but they've had to understand and trust me over a long period of time that i'm not going to i'm not going to use the testing against them i'm going to use it to write their programs and I've got their I've got their backs in terms of like I want to give the coaches a headache that they've got 25 players in outstanding shape that could all be selected and offer something different. And um, people that won a gold medal in the last cycle that can get level 19 on the yo-yo. No, it's it's interesting because I um I was recently on a course and I can't remember the guy's first name, but it's something Owens and basically he worked with Chris Coleman um out in China. Um, and he, he's, I think he's got his pro license, but he's also a, a, he's got a doctorate in kind of sports science basis. And he was talking about the framing of ses- sessions and the framing of work. And one of the things they did out there, because 
obviously there was a language bar- barrier particularly early on is they'd created uh, like three minute videos of what the day would look like <laughs> so like it, you, they would all the players would come in they would have a video of them doing their prehab exercises and in the prehab exercises you would see exactly what they would be doing with the number of reps and sets and stuff on they would do um, what games they were doing in training so what the warm up would look like what the game would look like and then thingy kind of and then if it was lunch and then to go home um, and initially I thought that must be really tedious to sit there and watch that day after day after day. But I actually, thinking about it, that's quite a creative way to get around a problem of not being able to have that dialogue with someone because you don't have the language. So that's that- incredible when you see, especially especially China, Chinese athletes and Chinese teams. So when we go over and play China, um, like the whole time I've been here, well, they had a German coach role. Um, is it, is it, like, so you've got a German coach with a translator that's following everyone around, a Germanist and sea coach, uh, I think a South African or a Kiwi physio, all working with these Chinese players. And he's looking going, oh my God, that's the biggest challenge ever. Because the translator's got to get everything in terms of the tone, in terms of all that sort of stuff. So yeah, maybe a video sounds extreme in terms of planning everything out. But if then you see players that can arrive at training and they have the intent and the ability to just crack on, because as soon as there's hesitation or ambiguity, people slow down. Yeah. Um, or they speed up in order to just show effort and it's complete rubbish. It was, as you said, it's a, it's a really interesting way to deal with quite a unique problem. Obviously, for most of us, that isn't that isn't going to be an issue. But actually, when I, when I reflected on it, I thought it was actually brilliant because the players coming in it, it, I mean, they could have done it in the morning. It might have got sent through to devices and then they might have, you know, been able to watch it at home or whatever. But I thought the players come in, they know exactly what they're in store for that day. And granted, you might have a few of them that are there going, have we got testing today, which would have, wouldn't have been great. You might have seen a few people getting ill the night before. But I also thought it's a really good way of framing it for the players so they understood what their day would look like and possibly why. So he was talking a lot about pitch sizes and yeah. the use of space and all that type of stuff. So they, they linked it back to the, okay, today's a loading day. Here's the things we're going to be doing for our loading. The reason is it's match day minus four. So we've got an ability to give you a hit with a lighter day tomorrow that will put us in a good place for the weekend. It's a really unique, unique way of framing it for the players when you can't obviously just have dialogue like we're doing. Yeah, completely. Then there's always un- unintended consequences of everything. And the unintended consequence uh, for me in terms of trying to be organised in that sort of way is um, you sometimes create a brittleness in people that means they always expect and need that level of organisation, that level of understanding. Or um, well, sometimes things just get really, really busy. Like in the build-up to the Olympics this year, is I, I, was, um, I do the subs for the team as well. Um, or have done previously, done the subs um, when when required. So as an SNC coach, not a technical hockey coach, but sort of going on the physical sides, right on a bench talking to hockey players mid-matches, meant I needed to know what was going on. So you've got all this stuff going on, you have to be at training chips and all this stuff, sort of stuff. You're still trying to do programs for 25 people. Uh, you've created this monster of individualised programs for all those people. Um, 
you've you're trying to keep the MDT or the disability team involved in everything, so you're going to all the meetings, um, and you start to realise you've created a bit of a monster in every section of what you're doing. And then when you then think, okay, well the players are gonna they're gonna know what's going on today, they're all right. And suddenly you get you get a tech saying, well, we don't know our plans for next week. So well, it's the same as every week, but that's, so that's not their fault. That's what you've created. That's what you've put in. So it's just accepting whatever you do. Got to be consistent. Yeah, yeah be con- we just done a, a pre-mortem of the Olympics, or as, an, as a physical prep team. So sounds a bit morbid, but effectively we said, right, the Olympics hasn't happened, but if it had happened on August 10th or something when we got home, if we were turning to each other and going physically, we really dropped the ball at this Olympics. Like what? What happened? Like why did we physically mess up on that? Um, so that was an interesting process because um, effectively we just got negative together in a room and we're just like, well, we didn't do this, we didn't do that, we didn't do that, and it, it just, it just all you end, you end up, you not let down, you prioritise. Um, but if I could summarise that pre-mortem then there'd be two things. The first would be um, we weren't focused like really tightly enough on the Olympics in terms of exactly what the Olympics were going to throw us and therefore were we stress testing that all year? Did we know as a staff group how everything fitted into where we're framing it for ourselves? Second thing was anything you do, even if it's like budget, make it consistent. Serious, and it, it, like even if you only took a register of players coming in rather than doing this elaborate monitoring system, just take a register every bloody day, and don't take a register one week and don't take it next week, and then expect it to be a good process. So yeah, very important. Involving people in the process is also important because then when plans change, they trust you, and you've got to also trust them to be able to ask questions, and then you can move from there. But it doesn't. I haven't got very good at it. And you you mentioned a minute ago that you have <clears throat> sorry you have uh, IDPs for your players. What form do they take? What do they look like for your girls? I mean, they've changed. They've changed heaps over over the years I've been here um, at hockey. Um, it's not particularly new concept. It's just it's a individual development plan for that player. Um, and surely it's not something that strength conditioning particularly drive. Um, with the diagnostics, we tend to do them three times, three to four times a year. Uh, also, we've got like Bishop, we're really lucky. We've got a lot, lot of access to like really good kit. Like, we've got 25 meters of opto jump. We've got uh, two sets of force decks. One, you know, another set on the leg press. We've got hamstrings. So we've got loads of ways of giving augmented feedback and giving consistent feedback and letting people know where they sit physically and what we're trying to work on. So the main thing with the IDPs is the, is, the, is the players' opportunity to talk hockey with the coaches. And we should be there to then listen to that, hear that, and maybe add something a bit extra now and again. Um, so generally, the players should come in and the players will say how life's going. Like, it's a big bit for them. Just like, what's happening in life? How are you finding stuff? How are you coping with things? What are you looking forward to? Um, and I'm, I'm bastardising the process here a little bit. And then they then they'll go to go go to the coaches first and they'll talk hockey, um, and that's the gold. That's that's when 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 the player is well prepped, when the coaches have a clear idea about what the player needs to improve on, and they're actually a well prepped 
as an SC coach, you are there and you can then go, okay, well, here are the things physically we want to work on, but hearing what you guys are talking about, here are some things we can do. It allows you to um, adapt your language and refer, have a reference point with that player about why you're doing something and what they need to improve. Um, when those RDPs are done badly, players aren't prepped, we haven't given them enough time. Um, maybe not this happens. Sometimes the coaches maybe haven't prepped for that particular player or for whatever reason it's happened like that. Or support services take over. And we start turning what is a supplementary service into the, the, the centre of the conversation. Um, and do those conversations get formalised like in a document form or not? Yeah. So um, as part of the athlete agreement that we have, so um, the contract that players have and the athlete agreement they have means that they get these quarterly reviews. And that is one about the uh, them getting feedback and working out. But it's also about getting their status in the programme officially um, stamped. So either red, amber, green in terms of that's slightly changed recently. Um, but you've got different status points. So sort of green, you're on track with different bits and of international performance. Amber, things to work on. Red, red's um, moving on from the programme. Um, so yes, it is an official thing and it's, it's got an important aspect from that side. So Which might link back to your point if you're seeing maybe uh, behaviours that you're you want to challenge on stuff, that's a good opportunity to say in front of everyone, this is the expectations for this next block. If they then don't achieve those standards or those behaviours, you can say, well, hold up in your last review. We went through this and said, this is the area we're going to work on. We all agreed that was going to be the case. What's going on? You can get that. I mean, it's, that's not ideal if you're using an official process to get those sort of messages across. I mean, what's, there's steps the before meetings, that. We should we, we prep meetings for those. We know what we're going to say. We know what, where we're on point. The, the, the key thing is what the head coach and the coaches want because the thing that reaches people more than anything else is selection. Yeah. You're going to get picked or not. And that's where I've learned to calm down. Is like If someone wants to play silly buggers with me and like not do their program, when there is a huge line of evidence to show that when you follow the program it works like it's not it's not rocket science i'm not trying to say like doing something unbelievable it's just we've got consistent evidence of dose response do this do that this happens and so if someone's going to sit there and play silly bugs with me is i go well okay well i've got a coach here and i'm really lucky to have a coach does this he's he massively backs the physical um importance uh, or the physical preparation importance in us trying to achieve what we want to achieve. So effectively, if he's hearing that that person isn't achieving what they need to physically, which to honest you, you see on the pitch, because hockey's a fast game. It's a it's a sub-maximal sport, and you get to sub on and off. So actually, when you're on, you need to be going hard and really hard all the time. So if you're not, tactics don't work. So this is what was interesting when you say earlier about are uh, prefer the technical tactical side of things or that's where my job I don't think you can separate them because if you look at you know young Anne Croy talking about total football it's like total football is hard <laughs> because you're playing an intensity the other team can't cope with it and you will break them eventually but it's it's hard it's physically intense so in a team sport my job is to make sure that we can train with the utmost intensity 
So generally, the coach will say, you're struggling in these scenarios. We need more impact from you here. Uh, we need you where the game needs you. So it's just going, okay, you just sit there. So I'm just going, well, maybe we'll work on that running fitness then so that you can be where the game needs you. Yeah, I think the interesting thing with IDPs at the minute is everyone's trying to be creative with um, the ways they do them. I know we're, we're doing them with our lads and we've got some creative ideas to try and engage with them. Um, I spoke to Barry Maddox um, previously, um, who's a skills coach at Dragons Rugby, and he was saying that um, one of the things he's found most beneficial with the IDPs is letting them design them. So when they formalise it, rather than giving them a document, they go to the player, okay, we've had this discussion, go and formalise this in a document in any way you want. And it's interesting to see what players come back with, because some came back with like five pitches with minimal writing on there, but those five pitches really ingrained. Others came back with maybe a bit more writing heavy. And I thought that was a really nice way of actually, if you talk about players taking ownership of an IDP, well, the first step to that could be just getting them to design the IDP rather than you doing it. So this is where, this is where I'm talking about me bastardising the project. The players do that, so they create their own uh, document, which is the living and breathing record of what we've spoken about and what is being worked on next. So which uh, values they're, they're most looking to work on. So we've got uh, four uh, main values, for example, like we bring the fire is one of them. So players may say that we bring the fire is my key value I'm going to try and work on between this IDP and the next. How the players present that is crazy in terms of like, yeah, some people will bring in a Word document with five lines and no formatting, just literally duff, 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 usually accountants. <laughs> um, and then other people have come in and like, you know, I've seen some that weren't appropriate and they got changed. But then some amazing creativity in there and people owning a document that then we can refer to. Um, but that's why working with like people like Andrea, people like Emma Mitchell, who's our performance lifestyle advisor, um, like people that just get this stuff and are creative and want to empower people to roll with this stuff. And then the key thing you can then do is rather than try and go, well, that's good, I need to add to it somewhere, is just commit to it. And when a player uses that document, refer to it. So when you're having conversations at another point, you can talk about the fact you they're, they're, they've said they want to bring the fire. Okay, well that, or they want to take the leap. So we, we take the leap as one of our values as well. And it's like, okay, well, that's going to require you to do something today that you've never done before. Or actually, you've done the same thing for four weeks now. It's time to take that leap. It's time to push on. It's time to get that 1%. Like what a year would look for you guys. Obviously, I'm assuming for a lot of your girls, it's a mix between work and then hockey as well. So we used to have, in the last cycle, you may have seen afterwards, there was the whole thing of like the 31, like hashtag 31 after we, after we won gold. And that was in reference to the fact that we were, there were 31 people in the squad, I think of which like maybe six to eight were part-time. Okay. Um, that model then got changed uh, in this cycle. We now have a development program, EDP, um, where players, some I think players are funded to a certain level and that may need to sort of get them to camps and other camps like that. But then players that are with us are full-time centralised um, players. Really encourage dual aspiration stuff. So basically having other careers or other things that you're doing at the same time, whether that be university, whether that be um, like Holly, our captain, is um, 
close, very close to completing all her uh, accountancy exams. And she's done that the whole way through. I don't know how the hell she's done it. Um, so we, we do push that, but it's very much like you are first and foremost. You have the funding to be to train full time. So what does that look like in terms of blocks for you? If, if, if let's say we're a year out for the Olympics, obviously they're, they're full-time athletes in terms of blocks how long do you get them for what what did that planning look like how did you plan to get from august 2019 to august 2020 um kind of building that process what did that look for you guys um it's a big question um i mean firstly anyone ever says what's your normal week look like you never ever get normal week like every week is different you have an idea of what it might look so last year, for example, um, we had the Europeans um, in, in early August, which is a key tournament for us. Like It's good ranking points, but also it's potential qualification. Also in hockey, you carry. Um, and then you actually realise the, the peak or perform rather than peak constantly throughout the four-year cycle. So whilst you have your big-ticket items of the World Cup, Europeans, um, Olympics, like, you're, we now have the Pro League. So the Pro League is now an international league system where nine, it's meant to be the best teams, um, seems to be the teams with the most money, the most connections. Um, you play each other like, like the first year or last year before COVID was basically you play them at home and away. So that included New Zealand, Australia, Argentina, uh, China, Belgium, Netherlands, like all over the, all over the world. So while we were preparing for the Europeans at the end of that summer, we had the whole Pro League, first time it had ever been done, with international travel, where you were travelling to a location like New Zealand for one match, and then moving on. Um, so it was a completely new challenge, but what we also had, at the um, that format got changed this year to reduce that travel, you played a double header, so you played on the Saturday and the Sunday, or the Friday and the Sunday against the same opponent over there. So that changed the planning a bit, but that still kicked in from January onwards. Um, last year, we had the Olympic qualification event. So we had to finish the Europeans, give the players a break because they had a massive, massive year with Pro League building into Japan trip, building into the Europeans. So they then had a break. They needed a break, but then we had the Olympic qualification. So we then had to repeat for that and train for that. So we had training blocks, two, three-week training blocks building into that. So generally, if we've got the chance to have structure, we tend to go three weeks in the building and one week away from the building, um, where there's some decentralised training and other bits like that. Um, I don't think I've given them a week off in years. Um, but oftentimes it's the mental break that seems to do it. Like People enjoy being active. They're very fit individuals. They enjoy the activity, not necessarily that I've set. Um, but mentally, getting away from the group and getting away from people like me is probably massive. So, yeah, we had to peak for the Olympic qualifiers, and then we had a bit of a break, but then we had to get ready for Pro League, which meant we had to do a remote, well, firstly, last year we did a heat acclimation block, so we did a four-week block, a week where we did just some general training and some pre-testing, we then did a two-week uh, block in the chamber, then we did some post-testing the last week and sent them off with their remote programs to then do... Um, so when you start looking at the year, it's crazy when you think back on it, you're going, right, well, we had to qualify for the Olympics, we had to do the heat acclimation stuff to learn about the heat tolerance and what we might need to do with the group in the build-up to Tokyo, which is physically the most demanding Olympics ever. 
in terms of the, the environment. Um, but also then compete in Pro League when there's really valuable uh, ranking points available. So the challenge that I set myself in the first Pro League and this Pro League again was, okay, how do we make sure we're in the best possible state for Pro League, but then throughout a competitive season, actually improve in some aspects of physicality whilst maintaining all the things that are going to really set us up for when we're playing in the Olympics, which is eight matches in 13 days. Um, so, mate, I, that is a 10-hour conversation about how we thought about trying to maintain physical characteristics during an international travel competition. Speak to Tom Farrow, um, the England Sevens um, S&C coach, similar, similar challenges in terms of the international travel whilst trying to maintain physical potential for the really big showpiece events at the end of the year. Uh, it's a real challenge. But you can do it. And I've seen year on year on year physical improvement in the squad throughout the year, however hard or the, the schedule's been, even with big tournaments, we have managed to make physical progress consistently. Um, obviously in waves and flows, but anyone that says you need to peak and then rest and then rebuild the whole thing again, I just don't believe that. Is there areas which are easier to kind of just maintain and do a quick jump later on compared to other areas that maybe you need to constantly keep improving with? And what do those look like? I mean, again, like we said earlier with the adaptation groups, it depends on the individual. So what you learn over time is who drops what and who can maintain what easily and what's important. Um, as a rule of thumb, um, speed, power, change direction capabilities, they're hard-earned and they are long-term. And once you've got them, you can then work on maintaining them. But if you haven't got them, you need to spend a long time building that. So that's been a sort of, with some of the girls, been a four-year process in terms of um, gradually building up their their straight line speed, their ability to accelerate, their ability to turn, but then do that under fatigue, that's taken a long time. Um, so repeat speed ability is something that it takes a long time to improve the initial efforts and the stuff you're trying to recover from. The ability to recover from something, however, I think the closer you get to the tournament, the more you just start going, right, we're now going to make sure you can do what you can do repeatedly. And we're going to do that in quite an intense block in the build-up towards coming. So I will be planning. Chronic load is high so that they are they're battle-hardened, ready for the tournaments that you have to have in hockey. But effectively, the training in the build-up to that will start to really hone in on the high-intensity, repeatability um, uh, elements of fitness in terms of your aerobic recovery, um, your um, ability to buffer, your ability to... Um, Cope with high levels of anaerobic stress. Yeah, fundamentally there's something that needs to be built, but you can get that quite quick once you've got a really solid base. Aerobically, you can make peripheral changes quite quickly, um, I think. So, But as long as you've got the hardware in place. So as long as you've got heart, lungs, um, blood volume, and your basic abilities to... Um, supply the body with what it needs that needs to be in place because that's a long that's a long burn that's a long win 
but in the short term, you can make someone quite intensely fitter in a short period of time within their window of sort of opportunity or window of their bandwidth, if that makes sense. So you can almost, if they've got a good base to work from, you can hit them with a block to increase that slightly towards the end of the thing, as long as they've got that, like you said, heart, lungs, all that type of stuff. Ideally, it's, it's, it's as contextual as possible. So the way I tend to build it up is that the further you are from the key tournament, the more general your conditioning or your work can be. You're, you're trying to build, you're going, okay, what does this person, what does this person need? What does this person have limitations in? But also, what's this person's USP? Like, what's this person bloody good at? Why have they been selected? How can I help amplify that to its max whilst also ironing out the things that might be performance limiting? Maybe in a more generic sense. So, to, to go very broad, if you're trying to, if someone has an issue with the fact they, they struggle to buffer, they struggle to cope with really high, high intensity events, they get heavy legs. What you could do a lot further out from tournaments is do two on two minutes on, one minute off um, at set thresholds, so that you build someone's ability to both create and clear metabolites and cope with working above lactate threshold, for example. But as you get closer and closer, that may shift to then in the midterm repeat speed sessions. So actually practicing the, the physical thing you want to do, but then when you're really close, you want it to be on the pitch. So that's where the closer we get to the tournament or in a key training block, that will be S&C coach, technical coaches in a room together, me trying to make sure I understand what they're trying to achieve tactically, technically, but then also trying to advise on, okay, if we're going to really build a piece, this is what training needs to look like. So it becomes more and more contextual, more specific the closer we get to the actual event because you need to see what people are going to do. Okay, so two questions off the back of that. First one, in, in terms of tracking for players, uh, do you have like GPS units which you're able to work with during training and stuff so you're able to see what distances they're covering, what rate and all that type of stuff? And the second question is, for like a top-end hockey match, what type of repeat sprints, distances and stuff are the girls doing? Well, so first up, yes, we've got GPS. I got very excited today because when it collected... Um, our new units we've got 54 new units for the men's and women's squads from Catapult um, so I think they're X7s and they're sitting sorry it doesn't go live they're sitting in my living room right now charging up like a Christmas tree um, so yes we've got them they're um, they're really good we're really lucky to have them um, and it's one of the big advantages of being centrally funded in UK sport money is that um we're able to have things like that, which considering, you know, we're very lucky to have it in hockey. So yes, we have that. Um, the big advantage we've got now is we can, we also encourage players to play club hockey as well as train with us. Um, but one of the issues as a strength and conditioning coach and sports scientist is that's a lot of extra training load that we don't, we're not in control of. We don't necessarily understand what they're going through in a week. So Hopefully, with these units now, we can understand club training and club matches more, more effectively, and start to work that in. But yeah, we this week or this summer, a big part of what I've been trying to do is really define the demands of eight, eight matches in thirteen days, um, and that's been heavily using the GPS, but also um, the wellness that players fill in every day and our session RPE work. So we get an internal load as well as an external load. So to get. Technical no, 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 it's important. Basically, it's important. 
it's really important to understand how what people perceive, what people actually experience, and then also compare that with the numbers. Because when we get in the heat and the humidity of Tokyo, the GPS will drop. It will naturally the heat will be a natural limiter to physical capability, but it'll feel freaking horrific. Um, so we need to get really good at coping with that and work out what the costs are, uh, but also learn from what happens in the heat to maybe adjust our tactics. So it's all very well saying we're a high-pressing side and play like Liverpool. Okay, great. Go and play in 35 degrees and 80 degrees, 8% humidity and do that. You can't. So one of my jobs that I really enjoy, like we were talking about earlier about the tactical side, is providing information back to the coaches around the consequences of what our capabilities are, what we can do at sea level in temperate conditions, and then when we get into the hot matches and other bits of that, try and explain what the impact of that is and which tactics or which parts of our games or which part of our game may need to be limited or which players may cope well with that, etc. etc. So yeah, we're trying to learn as much as we can on that front. Um it's tricky because there's only one of me and I've got an assistant that works across both squads. Um and because we're an Olympic sport we often think we should be doing things as well as all the top institutes and clubs everywhere but they've got teams of people doing gps and much smarter than me so um i've learned to rein that in a bit second part of your question um this yeah this week i've been trying to look at the real demands match demands and what it is we're asking players to do and what positional differences there are and there's quite major positional differences in terms of the physicality of a hockey match um because some players will stay on the pitch for the whole match. We play four 15-minute quarters, um, so 60 minutes of playing time, but within that you have stoppages, and we have rolling subs the whole time. Um, so it's one of those sports where the intensity is really high, but there are definite positional differences in what you do. You'll know from football, it's like a centre-back, even though they're marking a forward, will not do the same running as a forward, because the forward is coming back to sit deep and then pressing, the, the centre-back, everything's in front of them, they're seeing the picture. Stepping um, up with their arm up, saying offside half the time as well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah like, I tried to class that, but then the thing, the difference being in hockey is that the full-back will then have to be or will likely be on the pitch for 55 to 58 minutes of the 60 minutes. So they have to be able to make good decisions under pressure, under fatigue, under duress. And their total volumes of work are very high, but their high-intensity volumes are lower. So they might cover 8K in a, in a 60-minute game, um, and, and that will vary depending on who we play and what, how the game plays out. Uh, but to be you, I don't really care too much for volumes of work, because like, like total distance, because I could walk a huge amount of that if I would just walk for the 60 minutes they were playing. The key thing is the intent, the high-intensity actions that take place during that match and the density of them. So how closely do those things happen together? And that's when you get real physical duress and what you've got to prepare people for. Worst-case scenarios and then most likely repeated scenarios that you know people are going to go through again and again. So if you're looking at top end, so obviously you've got the, the England girls at the top end, you've got obviously your... GB. Oh, sorry, GB, my bad, I get shot for that. Yeah, yeah, GB girls. Um, you've got uh, Holland, you've got Australia, all of those all of those teams. 
in terms of their their top output in high intensity sprints over a sixty minute period, or bearing in mind they're coming on and off, what are you looking at from those types of teams? I mean, we don't get their data, um, and it's always one of those interesting things about do, do you share numbers because other teams yeah. are basically going to try and gauge in a team, in a sport like hockey where you can roll on, roll off. The, intent, the physical intensity your team can maintain is so important. It's a bit of an edge. Um, but you're looking at, you know, you could be looking at oh, well over a thousand meters of high speed running. So high speed running being over 17 kilometers an hour. So what we think is the speed where they could maintain or they could run at VOT max. Um, so you're looking at midfielders forwards, you know, could hit well over a thousand meters of that. Um, which in the context, when you throw in then getting low, um, you know, Changing direction. Change direction. Reacting uh, to stimulus. The reactive nature of stuff. Stuff always feels harder when it's reactive as opposed to planned. Um, that starts to become a huge thing. So, yeah, high, high speed running could be well over 1,000. But and then sometimes if it, uh, the other team parks the bus, that can completely change. Um, and then it, so we, we look at variants of that. And one of the things I'm looking at for the Olympics is we know our opponents. We've got lots of match against all those opponents. Um, we can plot what the Olympics might well look like within a re- within reason, and then start to maybe look at which players, depending on who they play and when, in which position, how they might cope, and therefore what I need to do to give every single player the best chance of being selected and being highly successful when they get to that point. I guess you can adapt their loading accordingly as well. If you know that certain girls might be playing against certain teams. Um, you can obviously cater that. I know that's a little bit more challenging because of injuries and all that type of stuff. But um... teams train mate. That's the other thing. Like you look at the year, and teams get better by training with intensity and playing with intensity. So whilst you may think about peaking for one-off event at the end of the year, effectively, we want to train in the way we want to play. Which means we need to be up to speed on that soon, and we need our training structure, our training blocks. You're talking about blocks earlier. Our blocks need to help prepare people in the best way for the Olympics, for the critical mass, and then we'll have key individuals or at-risk individuals that will modify in order to either get them through a certain bit. The thing is, the game doesn't change. If you get to the Olympics and there's only 16 players, because we go from 18 16 players by the Olympics, you're going to have to do a huge amount of work eight times in 13 days. So how we get them there might vary, but at some point you've got to show that you've got the ability to do that because it's savage. And I guess there's no better environment to do it in than in terms of Olympic Games if there's an opportunity for you to kind of want to motivate yourself to run. That's as pretty good a, good a reason as any, really. Mate, it's it's all there for it's all there for. We've got great we've got great facilities. We've got great opportunities at, at Bisham in terms of the training we can do. Um, but honestly, I can say I'm not just saying this because I've worked with them. I'm really, I'm genuinely lucky. So the group that we've got is a really hardworking, um, ambitious, sort of excited group, and they work bloody hard. And especially work hard when, um, I was about to say, work hard when the lights are off. That's a phrase from the the men's team talk about that in terms of working when no one can see you. Um, but I've really enjoyed this summer in terms of giving trying to give them as much freedom as possible with the guidance and what we've had previously they've worked so hard they've come back in great shape so we've got really hard working 
sort of credible group of people that um, I think yeah I think we're gonna, I think we're going to smash this year I think it's, it's really exciting. And then obviously for you you I'm right in thinking you were in your role when you guys won gold is that correct? I wasn't lead so I worked across both programs um, which was brilliant because I worked with a guy called Ben Rosenblatt who ran the women's program and Andy Hudson who is head of physical prep for hockey as a whole so he ran the men's program but oversaw um, sports science and physical prep in that sense and what those guys did building up to Rio because I came in 14 months out um, the year into the Olympics is execution you know they'd done the hard yards and the years building up to that and they were executing by the time I got there so I ran rehabs and diagnostics um, as well as supporting them in their programs learn a shed load mate like like they're two fantastic practitioners and when Ben then moved on, so he's now the um, S&C coach of the senior England men's football team. Um, when he moved on, one of the easiest things for me to do was like, how do I carry on legacy? How do I continue the things that he was doing really well, but try and improve or do what Danny said about adding that fleet foot? So I watched the two squads. I was cut for the men that didn't go well for them. I just thought they were really well prepped. Um, I thought they could have done really well. Um, but it just showed momentum on the in the tournament. The men lost their first game to an opponent they probably thought they were going to be comparable with, and then the rest of the tournament went. The women turned around a recent loss to Australia and then went on. So, yeah, I, I, I assisted uh, both, and then I became lead really in the April after the Olympics, but I was sort of running the programme post-Rio. And how, how big a, I guess, boost was that for the program itself to kind of be able to say all the work that had been done in those four years got you to the to the top of the mountain if you like and has got what everyone's dreams was which was to win gold how much of a boost was that for the entire program well the girls vision in terms of what they what they what they're planning on doing what they what they aspire to do is a big part of that is inspire the future and I think the most exciting thing for everyone having won was, yeah, they, it was the culmination of a huge number of people's dreams. And it wasn't four years. It was 12 years, 16 years. Like, Kate and Helen Richardson Walsh had been there for a long time. Alex Dance had been there a long time. Hannah McLeod had been there a long time. Some players had joined more recently. But that was the culmination of years and years of progressive improvement. Um, and some real downs. Like, two years before, they came 11th out of 12 in the World Cup. So they went through adversity and came back. So, yes. That was massive for them. We lost a huge number of players after the Olympics. Um, so the boost for the sport was massive. Hopefully we'll also see the benefits of that in a few years when the players that have been inspired come through. Um, in terms of the programme, it was massive. It's also been a big weight for the new players that have come in and for people like myself in terms of, look, I love working with Ben and I thought he did amazing things. I'm also... I'm, Someone's going to say what you like. Well, like I said, I'm an angry little man. And I'm competitive. And I'm like, right, well, Joe, I can improve things. It's tricky when you're trying to improve things from a gold medal. European and Olympic gold medalists. Um, world ranking of number two, highest it's ever been. And then suddenly going, we've lost two-thirds of the Olympic team. Um, and since then, we've also lost a few more in terms of other people leaving the squad or injuries. Um so it's been great. It's also been a massive pressure. And actually, one of the big relieving things has been us as a group deciding this is a new group, this is a new mission, let's, let's see what we can do. Um, 
so yeah, amazing achievement, amazing things. Great in terms of funding because that guaranteed funding also protected the men a bit, which is brilliant. Um, because they've got huge potential. Um, but yeah, the pressure, mate. Like, because you tell people, you know, you coach the Olympic champions. I'm all, it's not because of me. I'm <laughs> here for year, 14 months. And even if they would go and win something now, it's not because of me. Um, but you still wear that expectation. Um, but that's cool as well. Like, you represent your country and you've got a chance to go and uh, medal. I think the thing that I really hope as well, and um, you probably don't see this enough necessarily in English sports, you can have a little bit of that swagger as well. I think sometimes as a nation, we're quite, well, we're very humble when we do win stuff because it doesn't happen the most. But, you know, I'd like to think that the girls and the guys going into the Tokyo Olympics next year can actually go, you know what? we can mix it with all of these teams and we've got no qualms about that and hopefully as it goes perform to the best of their ability whatever that is in physically and technically but just do do themselves right and proud I guess yeah and the big thing for me in this year is going right how do I set this group of people up in the best way possible and use all my skills and all my effort to help them try and achieve that Um. Look, I think the idea of British people having swag, like unless you're having PE when you like know you're gonna smash people, um, the biggest thing you go in is belief and be well prepared. So trust. That's the, I think that's the biggest thing it's given is like knowing that this program produces. And if people just trust it and we all stick to our guns and we adjust Do your job. adapt as we go, but we can go we can go with belief. Doesn't mean you go in and you're popping around. But you can go and say, look, we created a, a, a position in the last cycle where we beat the Dutch in two major finals. The job we've got now is they've stuffed us a number of times this cycle so far, and potentially that swag, because four years is a long time, has needed to be replaced with some hard pragmatism and going, how are we going to beat them again? But when we do knuckle down... We know that we've got that in the locker with two major finals previously where we've, against all odds, turned them over. Yeah, and I like I like your thing now. I'm, I'm a big sports fan as well, and I am um, liking what you're saying, kind of to Bill Belichick with New, New England Patriots. He's a very old-school character, but his swag, if you like, as I use there, comes from knowing, them knowing the system and knowing that everyone does their job right and they're well prepared. So it's not strutting around the place arrogantly, but it's almost that inner belief as a group to say, no, we are prepared for this. All the work we've done has led us to this point. And if we all do what we're meant to do at the right time, with maybe a little bit of luck hopefully that should lead us in the right direction so I like what you said there and it links back to what you said at the start in terms of that trust building trust and having trust in one another as obviously as staff and also um, as players as well um, I, think, I think as well like what, what we were talking about when you said about the variety in my career and did that did that set me up well I think the key thing again is like you said it's good for, I, this so well I said earlier it wasn't a philosophy mark. I think now it is is that effectively when you're in whatever moment you're in attack it with everything you've got and learn from it 
because it will pay dividends. The, 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 the confidence you can, you can take from being well-prepped and having learned from what you've done previously gives you the confidence to walk into different rooms and know, yeah, I do know how to make your, you know, your quads bigger. I do know how to do this. I do know how to do that. I know how to make this change. I also know how to deal with a really headstrong coach. Um, they don't get it right all the time. Definitely don't. But uh, I would feel confident to try. And that's because of actually putting effort into the process and reflecting as I've gone, I think. Okay, so um, Tom, last thing from me, um, it's a bit of a challenging question, a lot of the stuff you said, which is who's the best player you've either played with or against or coached with or against and why? Um, something anyone, that I... Anyone, anyone I've played against would be you know, Bob from uh, Public Five. Um, <laughs> the best people I've coached... Um, you know, you know, weirdly, I thought you might ask this. Um, don't know why. Um, I wouldn't say there is a best person I've ever coached. Um, it's not to basically sit on the fence. Basically, go. There are a group of individuals. There are there is a there is a a class of characteristics, a collection of characteristics that I've seen in a few people. Um, the is like a it's like a drug to work with because. They're just, they're just different level. You can see why they, why they are where they're at. And like, like we were saying earlier, in terms of like, I like searching. You know, when I was young, and I was looking, going, what do the best do? Um, like you get so you get let down by so many people when you make a sport. You're like, you go, oh god. But there's a few people that have surpassed all expectations and that. So it, it, let's go hockey. Um, I think. There's two people in particular. So Alex Danson, who unfortunately has had to retire because um, of the injury that she got on holiday um, just after the World Cup. Um, absolutely loved working with that person. Like she is unbelievably driven. She's an incredible person herself. She's really, really kind and caring. But every time she runs on the pitch, she rubs her hand on the pitch, and that gives her permission to herself to be an animal. She basically goes, "Right, that's me. I'm changed. I'm now who I am on the pitch." Ruthless would do anything for you, but then if you're in the way, she'd shoot the ball through five of you. Uh, trains incredibly hard, um, lives the life, cares for other people, and is like uber uber skillful, but then has done it at the top level. Um, just amazing to work with. Um, Barry, uh, Barry Middleton as well, um, who's sort of record cap holder um, in, in men's hockey, just epitomises everything you'd want to work with. And it's just an honour to have him work with someone that um, lives and breathes everything like that, also has a clear idea of their identity, but then is willing. It was me coming into hockey as like a relative newcomer, which is really keen to get my expertise and hopefully saw that I was committed to what I was doing and so then embraced me into sport and, but also performed on a phenomenal level for a, a crazy number of years and dragged people with him equally a driver of the team as well as a follower and just brilliant guy um yeah and then you've got people like also the fletchers like ben and megan that i worked with when i was um i apologize to all the other judo players that i haven't mentioned it but i loved working with them um and there's another guy like this guy called seb butler and people like that that worked with the tennis academy people with humble people that work incredibly hard that are talented that have performance mindset is the key. If someone's got a performance mindset and they want to improve and they're hungry for it, whether you get on with them personally or not, I uh, hope most of those people think we did, 
Um, doesn't matter. Like once you've got that, it's like a drug to me. I'll, I will do. I'll work any number of hours and look into anything for that. And then love it because they go before because they they're well prepped. They've done the work. Well, listen, I, I think for everyone listening, we appreciate you giving up your, your Thursday afternoon. It's been real, real informative, and I'm sure everyone will be uh, fingers crossed for the Tokyo Olympics goes ahead next year and that both the teams um, obviously do well. Um, and, yeah, I'm sure everyone will be keeping an eye out this listening off the back of this. So I really appreciate your time, and hopefully I'll catch up with you again soon. Great. Good to speak to you, mate. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.